0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
1: Hello, welcome to The Drinking Hour with me, David Kermode. This week, what's in a glass? Well, more than you might imagine if this week's guest is to be believed. Daniel Primack has devoted his career to studying and selling premium glassware, most recently Zalto, and he'll explain how retro-nasal olfaction dictates our perception of a wine. Plus, later on, as ever, your IWSC medal winners to put the theory to the test.
0: The Drinking
1: Hour on Food FM. Daniel Primack will be familiar to many wine lovers as the man from Zalto. A serious wine lover, he's dedicated his career to wine storage and the glassware we should choose to enjoy our wines at their best. It's all about retronasal olfaction, apparently, which influences our perception of flavour. We've talked about Glassware on the drinking hour before. Uh, you may recall uh, the Telegraph's Victoria Moore is uh, fairly fascinated by it. Uh, go back to episode 30 if you want to hear uh, Victoria, as is Master of Wine Victoria Burt, who dedicated her MW study paper to the subject of what makes the perfect shape for enjoying champagne. Uh, that's back in episode 8. Uh, plugs over. Uh, Daniel uh, believes our choice of. Uh, pairing should extend well beyond food uh, to glassware, and he's going to tell us why. Uh, I'm dying to ask him the dishwasher question as well, but that can wait until nearer the end, uh, because Daniel joins us now. Welcome to The Drinking Hour, Daniel. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to uh, to talk glassware. It is uh, something that uh, fascinates me too, perhaps not as much um, as it uh, fascinates you, because it's kind of an obsession for you, isn't it? Very much
0: so. I um, encountered Riedel in the noughties and was bitten. Um, I just thought that it's such a uh, little-known element of wine drinking. It certainly, was back then far more accepted today. Um, and I've pursued it and followed it and tried to understand it as as much as possible ever since. So I, I suppose we must be. I must be approaching about twenty years of looking into this.
1: Yeah, and you have a similar interest in ceramics too. I think
0: I just love ceramics. I, I. It, there's no functionality or, or commercial interest, but. I, I think the nature by which we turn something as basic as clay uh, or sand into these works of art or functional works of art uh, fascinates me as well. But I would say I probably know a little bit more about glass than I do about pottery.
1: Well, just uh, for those who take a wine glass for granted, um, just tell us what um, makes good
0: glass. There are, num- there are a number of aspects, depends which angle you're coming from. Good glass in terms of its clarity uh is is defined actually um by by clarity um there are three components to to glass um they can be adapted very slightly um to change the durability the clarity of the glass but good glass in itself is completely even and completely transparent and the way that it refracts the light is part of the definition of whether you would call it glass or crystal
1: what about lead then lead or unleaded sounds like petrol, but uh, uh, what's the significance of that?
0: Lead was originally used to enable the glass to be shaped and to be cut. Um, The uh, early days of glass, they didn't really understand what they needed to do to the components to, to do what they wanted to do to glass and glass basically changes the melting temperature and it changes the crystalline structure. So in the old days um, by adding lead, it made the glass effectively softer and that's where uh, cut glass, Um, came in where where, where it was considered a sign of luxury and you needed lead. You no longer need lead, the understanding of the crystalline structure has changed, Uh, lead is not great for the environment around the factories, there is some concern about whether the contact of alcoholic drinks and lead in the glass is an issue, it's not 100% certain but it's certainly been banned in certain countries in the world Uh, and most good Crystal companies now do not use lead or are beginning to phase lead out. There is a process called cementing that actually Baccarat uh, invented and had the patent for, um, where they line the inside of the glass with a non-lead transparent glass layer. So you have the leaded glass that is cut and made beautiful, as many Baccarat glasses are, and then a very fine permanent layer of non-leaded glass that you can't see, you can't see the difference, but it's there to stop the alcoholic drink touching the leaded part of the crystal, and they then, that then means that Baccarat can continue to make the beautiful pieces that they do without any concern about what's called leaching, which is the, the transfer of the lead from the crystal into the drink that you're drinking. So if you ever do buy leaded glass, uh, you can always ask about the cementing process and whether that manufacturer does
1: it. Presumably uh, that would be something to consider if you're buying antique decanters or antique glasses, which I rather like. Very
0: much so. The interesting thing, though, is the more it's been used and you would assume if it's old, it has been used. The vast majority of the leaching has occurred. So you could also argue that it's safer to use very old, well used vintage cut glass because that lead transfer has mostly been been complete. Um, also the higher the concentration of alcohol in the drink, the greater the leaching will have been in the past. So when a brand new, for example, leaded decanter that had whiskey sitting in it for six months, I wouldn't want to drink that whiskey unless that decanter had been used hundreds and hundreds of times before.
1: Mm, Interesting. Uh, Having enjoyed a glass or two with you a few years ago now, uh, I know you have a a deep love of wine um, and you're a bit of a a fine wine connoisseur. Why did you choose uh, to specialise in this area, storage and and uh, and glassware, rather than go into actually selling wine?
0: I had a job outside wine in my 20s, and you know the bug you get when you're interested in wine. So I started to look for a career in wine, and I was offered a number of jobs at the retail front end with the, with the famous retailers uh, that we all know. Um, but I didn't really want to, not, not not. there's anything wrong with it, but I didn't just want to go and work in an off-licence, shall we say. Um, and I was introduced to the people who brought Eurocave to the UK, uh, a chance meeting. Uh, hit it off with them. They were looking for someone to run the retail side of their business because they were historically simply importers selling Eurocave cabinets from a warehouse. They didn't have very much retail experience and I already did. Um, and we brought together the commercial side of selling Eurocave with the front-end retail experience that became the first shop that we had in New Cavendish Street in Marylebone, which was a wine lovers destination very much. Whenever people talked about which wine shops tourists should visit in London, we always got to mention, and um, we gradually became known as a Aladdin's cave of, of wine accessories and wine drinking equipment and wine fridges. And so I the, the niche appealed to me. I'm not bad at spotting Areas of business that other people, I think, don't, don't address particularly well. And it was not long after that. So I found a niche, found a product I like. I think, I still think, even though I'm not involved in them, I still think Eurocave make a wonderful product. Uh, certainly one of the best on the market. And that's when I came across Riedel, who were nothing like the, uh, the name that they are today.
1: Yeah, tell us a bit about that, because Riedel glasses are pretty famous these days, aren't they? Very much so. Riedel is the reason that almost all of us consider
0: the wine glass to be important. When I first encountered them in 2003, they were a much smaller business, operating out of an office in, if I recall correctly, Wimbledon. Uh, There were a few glasses in John Lewis, there were a few glasses in Harrods, but it was nothing like it is today. Um, And I, given my retail experience, worked out we needed something else to draw people in off the street, apart from thousand pound wine fridges. people would come in for the fridge and that, that would be it It was once we started to put the shiny things on the shelves, uh, we got a lot more footfall. Um, and I didn't know that I loved glass as much as I do now, but when you start handling lovely glassware, it can become quite addictive. So I combined a, a, a love of a, a, a material or a fascination with the material, um, with the desire to, to, to sell things and helped Riedel grow through the noughties. Uh, And that's when they really started to communicate to the consumer that the shape makes a difference. I remember in the early days of selling Riedel that the vast majority of people who came into the shop considered the message that we were spreading to be marketing, to be psychosomatic, to be influenced, to be something other than the science that is behind, as you said in your introduction, retronasal olfaction, which is the thing that affects how we perceive flavour and we come on to that as you say so uh, I spent and Riedel spent and great many other people working with Riedel spent a long time demonstrating to people uh, by letting them do it for themselves um, that the glass changes the way that we perceive flavour so it was was, like with any career uh, right place right time
1: right idea and open to new ideas Mm, we'll come to that science in a moment because it's really interesting Uh, but I want to get from Riedel to the next stage, which is of course, Zalto. Uh, they arrived in this country in 2008, I think. So they're a, a newbie even compared with the, the likes of, of Regal, um, as you mentioned. Um, tell us about Zalto. So as Regal were growing,
0: they didn't deal directly with the consumer. And around the <laughs> the period of the financial crash, if I remember to, to, to the right year, uh, they decided to start working more directly with the consumer, they were getting much bigger. and. We were looking for a new brand to work with because Riedel wanted to plough their own furrow, to, to to coin a phrase. And um, quite simply, someone from Zalto walked through the door of the shop. They'd heard that we were rather good at selling wine glasses, put one of their glasses on the table in front of me, and I think within ten seconds I decided I'd never seen anything like it, never felt anything like it, and was desperate to sell it, and we we got on board with them in around around that time. And due to really the product speaking for itself and how. Uh, new and how different and how original it was based on how light it was How it had uh, straight sides if you if you if you in in the old days all glasses were tulip shaped based or egg-shaped based on uh, Riedel's main designs and Zalto came along and revolutionized it with this straight-sided glass of which I, I don't Recall or don't think there were any or hardly any on the market at all um, and Zalto again very fortuitously uh, but because we built our reputation, it gave us the opportunity to retail their product, which we then doubled the sales of each year from the, from the first year that, that we took it. And so they came along at, at the right time.
1: They are expensive to most people, aren't they,
0: really? Depends what you mean by expensive. So if the glass is equivalent to a bottle of wine, they're not expensive. If the glass is equivalent to ten bottles of wine, then it is, uh, given that once you spend £30, £40 on a bottle of wine, you open it, you drink it and it's gone. Uh, If you buy a £40 glass and you don't break it and you get to use it a hundred times, 500 times, I I don't know how many times I've used my glasses at home, I very, very rarely break one because I'm used to handling them. I think, like people who buy nice clothes, what what do they talk about? Cost per wear? Uh, Or or a fine pair of shoes? I think Prince Charles was quoted in the paper the other day saying he's had the same pair of British made shoes for 40 years. Uh, I would argue that they're not expensive. Mm,
1: yeah, that's a good point. Certainly the wardrobe point, the uh, the clothes we buy that we wear again and again because we love them. And, and I guess that's uh, uh, fairly similar with a, uh, a glass like a Zalto, which uh, I I do enjoy uh, drinking from. Uh, We'll come later on to how to look after them because that's uh, really important too. But um, actually I was curious, is there a supply of Zalto at the moment? Because on your website, virtually everything that I could find when I was doing my homework said it was out of stock.
0: There has been a big supply problem since the beginning of the year due to COVID restrictions during 2020 and 2021. Um, All Zalto glass is mouth blown and mouth-blowing and Covid do not mix. Uh, the Austrian laws were very strict. We here in Britain saw on the news how strict some of the, the laws in some of the countries were in, in Europe, uh, stri- even stricter than our uh, restrictions and lockdown. Um, it's uh, eight teams of eight men that blow the glass and they were reduced to four. Four men were allowed to work in the same space, usually as eight, uh, which effectively halved production. So for two years, Zalto's production was halved, which means after two years, we've lost a year's production which would explain why we began this year with a year's delay. Um, It's been very frustrating. Normally we are yes men, Uh, we don't turn people down, we don't turn customers away, but I I have effectively spent two years very gently explaining, letting people down and managing their expectation. It's slowly recovering, but because COVID came along at exactly the point Zalto's name was going into the stratosphere, demand was increasing exponentially just at a time when production was halved and so with everybody sitting at home finally rather than being out and about during lockdown everybody wanted to get new wine glasses not not just our brand but all the brand, all the major glass brands saw demand and uh, demand for Zalto went through the roof just as production declined so it's become uh very difficult but it, we're gradually making it back it is we are delivering into retailers but we deliver into a retailer uh, they sell out immediately and then we deliver into another retailer and they sell out immediately. So unless, unfortunately, people are on a waiting list or they manage to catch that retailer at the moment, they get a delivery. I don't foresee normality returning until at some point next year. We are very gratified by the continuing demand, even in the
1: face of limited supply. My God, that is a you know, a literal example of the pandemic uh, sort of wreaking yes. havoc. On a particular industry, um, yeah. you, you would be tempting to put up the prices given the demand, but I don't think you've done that, have you?
0: Very little, very little. There isn't. There is an annual or a, a, an eighteen-month, very gradual price increase because, um, which interesting, your your question brings me on to the next challenge that we're going to be facing. Um, but the number one cost of producing mouth-blown glass is labor, and the second cost is energy, ah. and there are furious conversations going on, furious as in not angry, but uh, intense, I choose a better word, intense Mm. discussions going on at the moment about the impact of energy at the factory level, which will most certainly translate through to uh, price increasing um, next year. We, we, we try and put off price increases as long as we can. So a a typical price increase would be two to 3% at best. Um, But we know that the price is a big factor in the buying decision. Um, obviously at the very top of a segment where price is no issue, as it would be for someone that drinks extremely expensive fine wine, they choose the, the, the product that they want. But as we move down the segment, and, and we're still looking at a very affluent end of the market, uh, we do work very, very hard to keep the price of a mouth blown glass. And that's the key point. They're all mouth blown as competitive as possible to reach as wider audience as possible.
1: Mm. Why is mouth blown so significant? in terms of the quality? You can achieve
0: an end product with the handmade or mouth blown nature of a product better than a machine can achieve. It's as simple as that. A machine uh, takes a, a, a straightforward shape, it blows very quickly and very hard like a balloon, expanding very, very quickly into a mold shape. And the precision and fine nature of um, the the mouth-blowing can only be done done by mouth. The machines have caught up wonderfully, uh, going back to Riedel, who who I'm still a fan of even though I don't work work with them anymore, um, have invested huge amounts of money over the last few years uh, in machine technology that is better than anything else uh, elsewhere. And when you buy machine-made glass that looks like or tries to look like handmade from Riedel, it is very good. But if you put the two side by side, you can still see a significant difference. Um, There are many, uh, many things in our lives that are handmade or machine made. And in general, um, where you want something artisanal, the handmade or mouth blown nature of a product will always be superior. So when you go to
1: the factory, which I assume you definitely have done, uh, there are people, uh, uh, men or women, I assume, um, standing round literally blowing bubbles of glass, are there? Yes, we have a kiln
0: uh, which has molten liquid glass in it at around 1300 degrees C hence the amount of energy required. Um, actually the biggest the biggest amount of energy is, is used to get the kiln up to that temperature obviously you've got a maintenance part of that energy which is still significant but turning a kiln off is an extremely bad idea because um, you lose your mass and you, you it, it goes cold so that, that's semi-relevant to this point. Um, they pull out the prerequisite correct amount of Um, molten glass which is the first challenge is how do you immediately measure exactly the right amount of glass that you need to blow this bowl It goes on the end of a giant, shall we say, long metal straw you've got one person blowing at one end, the other person holding the mould at the other end uh, and then creating the bowl adding the stem, adding the foot and it always takes two men to safely and carefully make one glass.
1: And if they're measuring out um, the the quantity of, of molten uh, liquid manually then presumably there's a chance uh, one glass will be uh, slightly different to another but yet when You've, I've seen Zaltos that they've all seemed to be a standardised size
0: you are correct in, but if I were to put ten of the same glass side by side you can see a difference in each one oh. you have to have them side by side you will see a very very slight variation and all, almost well all that variation is in the almost all of it is in the stem and the pulled stem where the base of the bowl goes down into the stem. It's all one piece. The bowl itself will be an almost identical uh, proportion. There may be, were you to measure it to the micron, a variability in the thickness of the glass. Some people, if you, if you get both extremes, if you get the, um, the negative and the positive differences, you can put a glass in your mouth and, and it feels slightly thicker. But to to the eye or without very careful analysis, you don't really see it in the bowl. When you put glasses side by side, you will see it where the excess glass is in the pulled stem and the thickness of the stem. So at the minimum end of tolerance, the stem is really thin and at the maximum end of tolerance, the stem is thicker. And what's quite interesting to us is that it's probably 52-48 ratio out of 100. Um, I would say 52% of people like the thicker stem and 48% of people like the thinner stem. And we get people returning the glass because the stem is too thick or the stem is too thin, even though the difference is about one (laughs) millimetre. That's incredible.
1: Let's do the science then. So uh, retro nasal olfaction. Um, What is it and and why does it matter in terms of our enjoyment of a drink? Fancy word for flavour.
0: When I talk to people about this who never encountered this topic before, whether it's socially or professionally, I talk about Tongue being taste, nose being smell, and flavour being the combination of the two, and in fact the retro-nasal olfaction, the the words that we're talking about, the retro-nasal, is actually your perception of flavour when the volatile compounds, the the bouquet, the aroma, the particles, not the solid part of what you're eating or drinking, go up the back of your nose because it's a cavity at the back of your back of your mouth and the back of your nose. So that's why you can. Breathe in and out, etc. Um, those volatile organic compounds, those those perfumes, those aromas, they go up the back of your nose and actually come out the front of your nose. That is your perception of flavour, and you can read about this in a, in a, in a number of books. Um, there's what there's two that I particularly like. There's the Psychology of Flavour by by Mr Stevenson or Neurogastronomy by by Mr Shepherd. They they summarise the, this topic very well. Um, but your perception of flavour is the combination of your um, taste and your smell and as you know in in wine we often talk about the nose of the wine and then the flavor of the wine we get wines where the nose and the mouth match and we get wine strangely which i understand but i'm still quite bemused by you know when you smell a wine it smells completely different to you to how it tastes
1: oh yeah definitely yeah but you get ones that smell like they taste oh absolutely um, more often you get it, it's it smells as it tastes but then something comes along and it's uh it's wow, uh, I wasn't expecting that.
0: Yes, yeah. I, I find the wines that smell nothing like they taste, and not in a bad way, just in a uh, almost as though it isn't the same drink. I find those wines quite, quite fascinating to, to, to think about um, when I'm not just straightforward drinking. And so that is your perception of flavor. It's not just wine, it, it's coffee, it's chocolate, it's cheese, it's steak, it's, it, it's anything. Your, your flavor perception is your retro, back of the nose, nasal olfaction sense. And that is, that is what the wine glass influences when you drink. And I can break that down a little bit more for you if you'd like.
1: Well, I was gonna say, how's this been tested then? Well, it's tested,
0: there have been scientific studies, um, but the problem is we don't drink in a laboratory. So I, I've seen the odd article over the years where scientists have managed to remove the impact of the wine glass on your retronasal olfaction, and therefore then say the wine glass makes no difference. But we don't drink in a laboratory. And if you look at the conditions that those uh, laboratory tests, uh, the conditions that were set, nobody drinks like that. You have to have the head in a fixed position and you have to do this, that and the other. Um, we, we drink in the normal world amongst friends in a busy environment with food, etc. Um, And, uh, the, 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 the laboratory tests are, are those that, that, that can show it. But um, it's all it's, it's anecdotal. It's a bit like it's a little bit like wine storage. In the last 20, 30, 40 years, the various wine universities around the world have done studies to show that temperature and light affect wine. But it's been known for centuries that the way that wine has been stored affects its flavor. And it's been the same with wine glasses for a great many years. Um, the, the really niche end knew it, I would say probably in the seventies. I don't, I've not read or heard of anything of people coming across this topic before, before the seventies. Um, and it's anecdotal. We've all experienced, we all can experience. It is repeatable by changing the glass and keeping the wine the same at the same time. Um, each day, your perception of flavor will vary. So at, at your test, from one day to the next may change, but that's because of you, because of your hydration, because of your tiredness, because of your hunger, because of your overall health. But at that very moment where you pour the same wine two, into two, three, four different glasses side by side, you, you yourself, and that's not you specifically, David, that's anybody listening. Uh, you can see the difference it makes and it doesn't have to be a brand like out or Riedel. You can do it with any variety of drinking vessel you have at home and you will find that the wine tastes different in the different vessels. And as we know, better wine is more complex and the better the wine, the greater the complexity, the greater the complexity, the bigger the difference.
1: Yeah, someone I'm very fond of, Kate Hawkins, the uh, writer for amongst others, Olive magazine, is very interested in glassware and she's forever posting pictures of often quite sort of cheap looking glassware that she might have picked up at a charity shop or something but she's always experimenting with tumblers and and, and different shapes and sizes and um and the, and the, the, the results are, are really quite fascinating yes i admire her for
0: doing that she's a, she's a great ambassador for the difference any glass makes um people who are less engaged or busy or or don't find the time when they are then encouraged to do the test will be reminded or, or discover it for the first time that it does make a significant difference. Um, but uh, I always, with a new wine, put it in at least two glasses side by side to decide which glass I think that wine uh, performs better in. I'm right eight times out of 10, but sometimes I'll I'll, I'll, I'll encounter a new wine at home and I'll, I'll, I'll assume it's going to go better in glass X and it turns out to be better in glass Y. It's, it's, it, my my favourite analogy is about, it's about beef. Um, We we go out to eat or we cook steak at home um, and we choose somewhere from rare to to well done. And if you try to explain that a rare, rare piece of beef or a well done piece of beef tastes different, perhaps to a lifelong vegetarian who's never eaten beef before, um, try and explain to them the difference. It's the same piece of meat and time and temperature is the only variable. And yet it tastes, as we all know, dramatically, dramatically different. There is no perfect analogy, but... um, it's the same stuff. And same thing with wine glasses. Wine glasses change the way that we perceive uh, the the, the, the flavour that we're going to enjoy. Mm,
1: the steak uh, analogy is a good one because it's, it's nice and simple and relatable, except to vegetarians, as you say. But uh, mm-hmm. you talked about some of the laboratory uh, testing of, of this theory. And, yes, you remind um, me
0: of one more I must tell you about, but sorry, David. Carry on. Well,
1: yeah, well, do. Uh, but I want to throw this at you because um, Professor Charles Spence, I think yes. it was he who said that um uh glassware was uh, irrelevant uh, to perception and, and he he tested this with I think with people with their heads in clamps or something that's the one mm. that's the one
0: that's the the, the, the main one I mean there have been others that have repeated that uh, that experiment but yes he's so he's a wonderful ambassador his book the perfect meal is is, is, a, is a very necessary read for anyone that enjoys dining out or well, eating at home, but it's mostly about dining out. I I feel, um, there are many, many aspects to his book. The, the, the material of the cutlery, the size of the plate, the color of the plate, the rim of the plate, the lighting in the room, the aroma in the room, the noise, perhaps you've read it, David. I don't know. No, Um, I should. Oh, it's a wonderful book. Um, and, and the, the analogy of that book with the impact on glassware of glassware on drinking is, is, is perfect. Um, but yes, he was one of the, Many, many, many years ago, where yes, he did that thing where he removed all the other variables, um, and therefore the wine glass had a far smaller or or immeasurable impact on the drinking. But that goes back to the point I mentioned earlier, which is we don't drink like that. None of us do. We are variable, we are human, we are in movable environments. So, yes, in a laboratory, you can take away a great many factors uh, to isolate one thing. But nobody drinks in a in a laboratory environment under such a controlled situation. The test or the the experiment I was going to um, mention that you reminded me of again. It's it's a good ten years plus. I think you can find it on but with a Google search. The Japanese uh, or Japanese university invented a camera that could photograph smell, and they oh. um, showed the layering inside a wine glass based on particle size. And the volatile organic compounds, which are the bouquet or the aroma part of wine, um, are the op- You know, your cereal box, you know, when you get to the bottom of the cereal, you've got all the little bits and all the big bits sit on top.
1: Oh, yeah. It's very disappointing when you get to the bottom. Yes. It's
0: the other way around with smell. The, the smallest particles float up and the, the larger, more complex molecules sit lower down. If you leave, if you if you swirl the wine, then leave it for a short while. Were you able to see the smell, you would see the lighter the lighter molecules floating and the uh, heavier molecules sitting closer back down to the liquid. And when you drink, you change the speed and concentration of the um, volatile organic compounds going up your nose and, uh, and and into your throat. and the the camera photograph from from many, many years ago that I still remember was was another sort of light bulb moment that enabled you to see the thing you can't see sitting on top of the liquid. When I um, look at a wine glass with some wine in it, and the rule with any decent wine glass is you only fill to, a, to the widest point, which is hopefully 25 to 30% of the total height from, from, from the bottom up. In my mind, I'm picturing the rest of the flavor sitting above the liquid. That's the bit I'm most fascinated about. Uh, and uh, there's a joke that says, um, a glass is neither half empty, nor half full; it's just completely full of two different things, yes. and so it's the it's the effect of the, the shape and the volume of the glass uh, changing those VOCs, those volatile organic compounds that you cannot see, but the Japanese camera can, on top of the liquid that's going to impact your enjoyment of the thing that you're drinking.
1: Another good reason not to overtop a glass, which is very much one of so. my pet peeves. Um, yes, so. Um, you're talking um, quite a bit about uh, perception, and of course, for for uh, for all of us, perception is reality, really. Um, but that's yeah. a sort of philosophical thing. But uh, but how important? Because these glasses you're uh, retailing are, are very beautiful in a um, a very Teutonic kind of way. Mm. Um, so uh, so so they do look magnificent as you you hold it and as you sort of admire it and bring it to your mouth. How important then is that sort of aesthetic uh, to your enjoyment of the wine?
0: Variable to the individual. I was taken by surprise some years ago. We did a small amount of market research. I think we asked a couple of hundred people, what was the most important thing about a wine glass? And if I'd had money to bet on the outcome and coming from the perspective that I come from, I thought the majority of people were going to say the impact on the flavor. Forget what it looks like, forget what it feels like. If it makes this bottle of wine taste optimal, that has to be number one. And I think it was about 80% of respondents said aesthetic first, which I completely understand uh, now. And I've understood for many years as I've got more experience and spoken to more people, but a very small segment of the drinking population can about nothing but the flavor and the vast majority of the people care far more about the context. And therefore, as in Charles Spence's book, who talks about plates and cutlery and color, the aesthetic of the wine glasses, forget my brand. I'm not specifically here to talk about my brand, although I'm very happy to. Um, I'm, I'm here to talk about a love of wine glasses and, and try and encourage other people to embrace uh, wonderfully functional wine glasses because function and form are the, are the two aspects to what we're talking about. Um, I think it's wonderful that they are beautiful i would be disappointed and probably not as enthusiastic if they weren't pretty to my eye but as you said uh, when you asked the question perception is individual perception of flavor is individual in terms of our history and our genetics and um, perception of of beauty of art is very very subjective and, and again down to that individual
1: you mentioned that you uh, routinely uh pour a wine into two different glasses, certainly if it's a, a new wine to you. So I, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing you, you drink a lot of wine, so you must do that quite often. Um, give us a, um, a kind of a, 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 a classic example of a grape variety or, or perhaps a style of wine and how uh, the glass can influence it.
0: My most recent um, amazement with the variation is Alvarino. Um, fell in love with Alvarino on my first trip to Galicia some years ago, I had already been introduced to it by a, a good wine merchant friend of mine, Ben Llewellyn, who uh, owns and runs Carte Blanche. I think he was my very first introduction to the wines of Northwest Spain, um, but more recently had access to more Alvarino, bought more bottles from more of my favorite producers. Um, in fact, I'm involved uh, at, a, at, a, at a certain level in in a bottling Uh, with Jamie Good and Ben Henshaw of Indigo Wine. The wine's called Sal de Terra that's um, done quite well and made by the fabulous winemaker Jolokio Pomares of Zarate, which I think is easily one of the best producers in Galicia. And the variation of... Alvarino's out there. I'm talking just, just for the topic of this conversation from Northwest Spain and the different wine glasses, or at least the three wine glasses, the three key wine glasses, should we, should we say small, medium and large, or, uh, from, from Zalto, it's universal Bordeaux and Burgundy. Um, the Bordeaux glass is my go-to glass. It's the one I enjoy most of the wines from, um, the, the first few times I started to play around, I would have said this Alvarino in this glass. And that's one that surprisingly, um, may not be the one you originally think some alvarinos prefer a tighter glass some alvarinos benefit from a giant burgundy bowl the, the the variation in that particular great variety is huge you you and i and most most people have encountered far more chardonnay than alvarino chardonnay does perform very differently but actually i would argue alvarino in my experience so far has an even greater variety of of flavors and complexity in uh, in in how it tastes
1: you mentioned uh the price, well I mentioned the price actually, you mounted a, a spirited defence of the price and that was uh, uh, that was uh, very convincing actually. But if if someone is setting out, uh, let's say I'm at um, university, uh, but I've developed a, a a real interest in wine and for a lot of people that's where it begins. So I'm going to buy some really good glasses, uh, but I haven't got the money. And in fact, you haven't got any Zeltos at the moment anyway, so I'm not gonna get any. So uh, does glassware have to be expensive uh, to be effective in the way that uh, you're uh, referring here? No, not at all. In
0: fact, um, there have been some people I've met socially in the circumstance that you described, and I have pointed them towards IKEA. Um, I don't have the, the, yeah, the shape of the the name of the shape uh, without Googling it now, and we're in the middle of a conversation, but IKEA did a shape of a glass that was really good for well this would have been two or three pre-pandemic but not far pre-pandemic i think they were about a pound 50 a glass durable not that thick well shaped no at at a at a level it doesn't really matter whether you're university or uh, perhaps you're, you 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 don't earn a fortune because you're actually doing a job that makes a difference to people um uh, you you i would argue I, I would argue spend roughly on a glass what you would spend on a on a bottle of wine on a tuesday night um, and try and buy a glass that is roughly widest, a third of the way up, as thin as you can find, uh, straight-sided or egg-shaped uh, like Riedel, um, and, 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 fi- and find some functionality that, that works. Um, that That is the most important thing. And as with anything, uh, a car, a pair of shoes, a coffee machine, a drum kit, a guitar, a fishing rod, whatever anyone is interested in there is a a point at which you get more for your money and then there is a point you're simply paying for name rarity and the fact it's covered in gold
1: (laughs) yeah i'll I'll leave the gold ones i i think um but there's a mass of different options you can go for if you develop this kind of glassware obsession and Riedel, i know have um grape variety specific glasses Uh, isn't that a bit bonkers because there are hundreds thousands of grape varieties?
0: There are. Um, Riedel have built their name and their communication strategy based on that. Uh, I would say for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, you need three glasses, four at best, different shapes. Uh, I like a glass for sparkling, which should not be a flute. I don't know whether you've covered that in your previous- uh, We have, topic. with
1: Victoria Burt, actually, I bet you, Yes, and I've still to guess. read,
0: I've still to read her NW paper. I tried to get it at one point and then didn't, and then missed that one. So I'm gonna go back and listen to your, your conversation with her. Um, but a, a, a white wine glass, shall we say, for, for sparkling, uh, a decent sized white wine glass or, or mid-sized glass for, for, for whites, uh, a big bowl for reds. I mean, that, that's where you begin. Um, the, the great variety specific element is where Zalto and Riedel differ. Zalto will tell you they produce a tool uh, like a screwdriver head and that screwdriver head has to fit the screw head Um, and you can use Zalto's tools of which there are essentially six totally wine glasses for everything. Um, But these will have their their way and Zalto have their other. But I would definitely at home for anybody suggest at whatever price point a glass for fizz,
1: a glass for white and a glass for red. Mm. Uh, Good advice. Victoria Moore, we uh, mentioned her in the introduction um, from the uh, Telegraph, wine editor. Uh, she's quite interested in the shape of glassware. And I know uh, she's uh, she written in her column um, about you, actually. She she uh, met you for, uh, for a, a glass of wine and a chat. Um, her repertoire of yeah. glassware, I think, by her own admission, is rather limited. I think she's got two different I, types of I, glass. Yes, indeed. There is... <sighs>
0: There is a completely understandable desire to rationalise or simplify a great many aspects of our lives, whatever angle it comes from. Because the more choice we introduce into our lives, the more complication, or, or to some people, anxiety they introduce. And I completely understand the desire to want to have as few, or or, or even one glass for all, as some exponents uh, try to do. But I, I think I personally think that's a bit limiting, and I. Have seen more than once that having one glass for everything really does limit the uh, the flavor profile of, of of what one might be drinking. Um, but Victoria has found the right solution for her, for her home, for her kitchen cabinets, for her washing up capability, for, for her guests. Um, in the end, it has to be the right decision for you. It's for no one else to tell you how you want your steak cooked. Uh, and yes, read uh, Victoria, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Victoria... Uh, is a great ambassador for different wine glasses, for the enjoyment of wine, for the difference that the wine glass makes. And when she does have the opportunity to drink from a very fancy wine glass, from whichever brand, even, she will say there is an improvement and it is a great pleasure to do. It's just not suitable for her every, her life at the moment.
1: Yeah, that's classic Victoria, actually. She's um, uh, always practical, but yeah, you're right. She She is definitely... Uh, on board with the, uh, uh, the message. Um, do you really turn up at people's homes uh, with your own glassware, or was that just when you went to her place? She and I have been friends
0: for quite a while, And that was just at her place with her on her invitation. Uh, In fact, the very first gin and tonic I ever had in my life was with Victoria Moore. She's probably the reason I drink gin and tonic. So I've got her to thank for that, among a number of other things. Um, But no, I do take my own glasses to a number of restaurants. So I'm fortunate enough to work with a great many restaurants, um, some of whom have become closer to me as, as friends or pro- professional, professional friends, shall we say, um, if they're not a customer of mine and I still love to dine there in the past, I have turned up with a couple of wine glasses and a friend um, to enjoy whether it's wine off their list or because I'm doing corkage and yes, I have taken glasses to restaurants and once you do it in the beginning, I felt slightly awkward, but when you've done it so many times you get used to it and once the restaurant knows you um, they can be very indulging in a, in a, in a, in a lovely way because, Um, you're a good customer.
1: Yeah, saves them a bit of washing up as well at the end, doesn't it? Which brings me to that big question, dishwasher. I don't put my wine glasses in the dishwasher, mostly because uh, my uh, partner is an extremely clumsy elephant and I know that they will come out in pieces. Uh, But uh, I'd always been led to believe that dishwashers were bad for glassware, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that isn't it
0: it is Um, you can and could be encouraged to put your wine glasses in the dishwasher the key element is the dishwasher itself uh, as long as the glasses don't fall over so there are uh, ways to stack the dishwasher or the odd contraption to um, clamp shall we say glass the stem of the glass to one of the tines one of the prongs sticking up that normally hold the plates so let's just assume the glass isn't going to fall over and you've done whatever's necessary to do that you don't wash glass with um, plates or cutlery food particles at um, hot temperatures and with the uh, pressure of the water act a little bit like sand shall we say over over a great many washes so the things that cloud glass um, over time in a dishwasher are how hard the water is, so it's essential to keep the salt topped up in your dishwasher, uh, how long the wash is on for, so it's essential to use the quickest, um, and to make sure that you use the, the right sort of um, tablet or detergent, so there are ones that are very good for glass. I would say the more value end of uh, dishwasher detergent is not to be used, uh, because it can be abrasive or powder-based, for example, um, and uh, yeah, no plates and cutlery. So a clean machine... Uh, A machine with the salt, you don't want any limescale having built up in your machine. You should be able to open your dishwasher, look at the back wall of the dishwasher, and it should shine like a mirror. If it doesn't, don't put your glassware in there. And don't let let the glasses touch each other when they're in the machine. So again, over a, a great many uses, if the glasses are touching, the water pressure causes the glasses to jiggle, and they jiggle against each other and they scratch each other. And what we want to do is maintain the clarity of the glass. The last part is that, going back to, I think, the first thing we talked about, uh, lead. If you know you've got leaded crystal, do not put that in the dishwasher. Water encourages that leaching process that we talked about. Water brings lead out of the crystalline structure, causing it to go cloudy. So if you want to maintain the clarity of the glass, do not put lead glass in the dishwasher or even soak it in water. Lead glass should be washed, rinsed and dried relatively quickly. And again, we are not talking about one wash. We're talking about... Say a hundred, um, oh. but clean machine, salt, soft water, no lime scale, no plates, no cutlery, no food. Don't let them touch. Don't let them fall over. Rinse aid, not too much. It can leave a blue tint, depending on the the, the condition of the glass. Um, over over many, many 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 washes, if you have done anything to demineralize or scratch the glass the rinse aid can actually soak into the crystal and turn it blue um, but rinse aid should be kept at a nominal level anywhere there are various settings in in the setup of the machines that will tell you to turn down the rinse aid if, it, if it's too much so that's a, that's simply a balancing act
1: I always rinse my glasses in water and then dry them quickly with a, uh, a, kit, with a kitchen roll uh, is yeah. that okay
0: yes absolutely this is when you're not dishwashing I assume
1: Yes. Uh, Yeah, I don't dishwash glasses because of the elephant. Um, If
0: you're hand washing, you want a perfume free detergent. Um, There is little or no fat. I mean, the the fat component of wine is is so nominal. I mean, what what would be the only fat component? Something like a a, a glycerin type, and that's not even a fat. Um, So I run a little bit of detergent neat around the rim of the glass to remove any food from uh, from your mouth that's got onto the rim of the glass. Uh, it's also quite good for breaking down lipstick and then yes, nice and hot um, without then moving the glass into a very, very cold. So no, no extreme temperature changes. Don't twist the glass. Kitchen rolls a bit, uh, a bit rough. Um, you might want to get yourself a microfiber polishing cloth, um, Okay. Uh, but yeah, absolutely fine. And then don't put the glass repeatedly upside down on a hard surface. Um, you can cause stress fractures in the rim of the glass. Again, multiple times. Don't stack your glasses in the cupboard upside down and don't leave your glasses for a great many occasions standing uh, rim down on a marble granite, very hard, wood is okay, but on an extremely hard surface, you can eventually cause um, microfractures in the rim due to repeated, um, should we call them strain injuries, a bit
1: like stress fractures in bones. Yeah, they're like athletes, uh, these glasses, aren't they? Um, Very much. Is there a, a really good universal shape? I know Zalto have a universal glass, so I'm assuming they think it's that but yeah. is there really one option? Because I think Jancis has a glass that is supposed yeah. to be universal, isn't it?
0: Well, it is. I mean, all glasses are universal in as much as you can drink from them. A jam jar is universal. Um, only you can decide which is your universal glass because you decide how you want wine to taste. Um, Jansis is again almost in Victoria's camp with wanting to rationalise uh, what she's doing, convenience, storage, simplicity. Uh, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful mouth blown glass. I would in fact say that chances glass is, is one of the two or three best sparkling wine glasses on the market. Uh, if I was going to spe- try and pick a specific use, uh, for it, but obviously chances will say it's it, it is, and most definitely is suitable for anything, but you might find an improvement in, 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 um, in a different glass from another brand for a different wine. Um, so Zalto's glass naming is historical. They came onto the market when Riedel was the was the big boy and um, they thought they should call the glasses Burgundy, Bordeaux, Universal, Champagne, etc. I know for a fact that were they to, to launch today, they would simply call it glass shape one, glass shape two, glass shape three to not specify the contents. Mm. Uh, unlike Riedel's, I also don't tell you what you should be putting in that specific glass. And therefore I would be saying to you, oh, this Alvarino that I'm drinking, David, I, I prefer it in glass shape three. Um, so, uh, Victoria has her universal glass, I have my universal glass, Jansis has her universal glass. You have to try out different wine glasses, uh, different shapes, different qualities, different price points, and decide, does it meet your flavour perception requirements for your everyday drinking?
1: Yeah, it's a good a point, actually, on, on the names of those glasses, because it would also be a nice way of not pissing off uh, wine producers outside France as well, wouldn't it? Because, you know, maybe you after champagne... Bordeaux, yeah. Burgundy, etc. Yeah. yeah, maybe they'll do that. I'm sure they. Um, uh, I'm sure they listen to you. Um, I, final question. I, I, um, just, just to conclude that topic, mm. I
0: almost always drink my white Burgundy um, from the Bordeaux glass, and people look at me askance when I put it, put, use those words. But I've explained my reasoning for that. But I love for ninety percent of the white Burgundy I come across. Uh, the way it tastes from the Bordeaux glass whereas a lot of people would say why aren't you drinking out of the Burgundy glass so the name is simply a guide to differentiating the the bowl shape it
1: is not a dictation of the contents of the glass. Right gotcha well on the subject of wine uh, we tend to ask our guests on the drinking hour for uh, a desert island wine Um, you can only have one I'm afraid what is it? at the moment
0: because it changes your 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 palate changes your your wine journey changes your experience changes i am particularly in love with um the um tuscan Montevertine. you'll know Pergolet tort that's their top wine but i actually prefer their um, their uh, the, the, the the tuscan the toscana uh, uh 100% sangiovese made very high up near rada And with a bit of age on it, uh, at the moment, it is my Desert Island wine.
1: Gotcha. Okay. well, uh, we'll provide that uh, should you find yourself stuck on a desert island, Um, hopefully with a a Zalto in hand. Um, Thank you so much. It's really fascinating uh, subject matter. Really enjoyed it. Um, Daniel, thanks for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much,
0: David. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the
1: world to judge the best in the world. Just before we go, as ever, some recommendations to fill your perfect glass, whether it's Zalto, Riedel or IKEA, from the IWSC Hall of Fame in 2022. Here's a gold medal winner from Tuscany, a Chianti Classico that would most likely appeal to Daniel's palate. Tenuta Casinova, 2018, won 95 points from the panel, including Alastair Cooper, MW, and Master Sommelier, Nicholas Clerc. Uh, here's what they had to say. Complex, subtle, and harmonious. Velvet-smooth tannins, tangy acidity, precisely balanced. Demonstratively dark fruits, woody and solid, earthy underbelly of well-integrated tannins, nicely spiced, and pleasing mineral freshness. Yum. Here is a silver medal-winning Burgundy, uh, one from Naked Wines, uh, Saint-Verin 2020, from Dominic Henthal, a former flying winemaker who's now producing wines in Burgundy. Uh, The judges, including Alistair again, and another MW, John Hoskins, alongside Svetslav Manulev, Master Sommelier, and Harry Crowther, uh, gave it 90 points. Here's the tasting note. Vibrant, juicy, fresh fruit characters with balanced, youthful green orchard fruit textures and excellent concentration make this an instantly appealing wine. And that's good value, too. I checked it out. It's about £14 uh, at Naked Wines. So good value for a medal-winning Burgundy. Vidal Fleury, Hermitage 2020. Another silver medal winner. John Hoskins, MW, a judge again, along with uh, Ben Llewellyn from Carte Blanche Wines, who was mentioned earlier by Daniel uh, the panel said this, expressive and juicy with gorgeous floral notes and fleshy red fruit flavours on the palate. Delightfully complex with a splendidly long, dry, herbaceous finish. Wonderful, they said. And I would agree, a uh, huge fan of those Fidel Fleury wines. And of course, it's not just wine drinkers who are passionate about glass shape and size. Spirits drinkers are as well. Most especially, in my experience, lovers of whiskey. They get very particular about uh, their tumblers, and so forth. Um, Here's a gold outstanding medal winner, Black Bottle Alchemy Series Double Cask Blended Scotch Whiskey. It won 99 points, one short of the Magic 100 in the judging process this year. Unsurprisingly, that also made it a trophy winner, one of the best in show. Uh, the judges, including uh, Deval Gandhi, uh, Master Blender and Director of uh, Whiskey and Spirit Operations for the Lakes Distillery, Colin Patterson, OBE, uh, Colin Hampton-White, uh, Jim Beveridge and our good friend Joel Harrison as well, uh, they said this, Sweetie nutty notes of almond and hazelnuts laced with vanilla. Smoky chocolate nibs, spiced fruitcake, potpourri and barbecue sauce. A smorgasbord of rich and varied flavours. Sweet, fine and beautifully balanced. Finally, let's come to a sticky end with this sweet wine from New Zealand. A sticky end noble Sauvignon Blanc 2021 from Waihopai Marlborough. Won a strong silver with 92 points. Uh, the panel, including Derso Viano Jr. MW and also Freddie Bulner, both uh, relative regulars on the drinking hour, said this rich, ripe apricot and mango notes with a savoury undercurrent of spices and ginger. Sweet, unctuous, and opulent, with good intensity and complexity and a long finish. And that's it, the drinking hour, thankfully uh, not coming to a sticky end, I hope. Uh, my thanks uh, to Daniel Primack, really enjoyed uh, that chat about glassware and how to look after it too. Hope you did. Join us next time. In the meantime, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. And I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. It's uh, goodbye for now.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the
1: International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.